welcome to Table Talk, the Spectator's food and drink podcast. I'm Lara Prendergast. And I'm Olivia Potts. And today we're delighted to be joined by Laurie Williver. Laurie is a writer and editor, and for nearly a decade worked as the assistant to the late author, TV host and producer Anthony Bourdain. Her new book, World Travel, An Irreverent Guide, is a vast catalogue of Bourdain's work and is out now. Laurie, welcome to Table Talk. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Laurie, we're going to start where we always do, at the beginning, and ask you, what are your earliest memories of food? I think my very earliest memory of food is a, uh, is a, an iced birthday cake. And, and I think that really imprinted on me very strongly because I, I cake, iced cake is one of my absolute favorite things. I grew up in a family that was uh, very practical about food, but also really uh, took pleasure in food. Um, my parents always had a garden. My father is a hunter, so he, uh, you know, we would have deer meat and he's a fisherman so we would have the perch that he would uh, fish from the lake and um, both of my parents really enjoy making pies together so a homemade crust and you know fruit or uh, pumpkin from a can whatever was sort of appropriate for the season these are things that are very much a part of my my young uh, food memories and what were mealtimes like in your family early that I remember it was always uh five thirty, six o'clock that was the, the rhythm that we were on and almost always homemade you know very little takeout that wasn't part of our culture of our family you know we lived in the country so it was um there was nothing close by to to go and grab and I think it was just important to my parents um from a budget standpoint and also just from a practicality standpoint to, to sit down uh, and have some kind of a home-cooked meal almost every night of the week. Maybe once in, in a while, maybe once a month we would get a pizza, but it was very unusual. My grandmother, my father's mother also was uh, very, very um, much about coming to, together to the table and she was much older. My father was an only child and his parents were were quite a bit older than the typical parents. So she had sort of this old world mentality. So they would, she would make uh, often a ham and a turkey and you know all of the side dishes, potatoes and vegetables and stuffing and homemade bread and again a pie and homemade whipped cream and these big oppressive glasses of milk that the, that the kids would drink. And this was, a, this was a, a home that we would visit and there would, it would be an afternoon meal. So it would be, they would call it dinner or supper, but it was at you know, noon or one in the afternoon. And then you just feel like taking a nap afterward because of all of that heavy food. But um, yeah, in, the, the, the term foodie certainly wasn't something that I had heard until much, much later. And I don't think anyone in my family growing up would, would, again, would call themselves foodies. We just, you know, understood the, the pleasure of the table and that we were lucky to, to have food, frankly. And was the preparation of food or, or the hunting of food something that you were brought into as a child? Was there an expectation that you would muck in? Not so much the cooking as the uh, the tending of the garden. I mean, that was something that uh, I remember being involved in and taught about from a very young age. I'd say probably by the age of three or four, I was 
Uh, I knew how to pull weeds and how to uh, pick berries, pick peas, that kind of thing. And I don't think I always loved it because I don't know, kids sometimes don't don't appreciate the the you know simple pleasures of of that kind of work. But I, I did grow to to appreciate it. And uh, you know, we would my sister and I would bake have you know baking projects with our mother, make cookies or cakes. Uh, we would make homemade pretzels or pizza dough. But as far as the actual cooking of a of a meal of a dinner, I, you know, my mother was I, I think. She, I see this in myself now too with my son. It, I'm not that patient and I'm not that, you know, to me, I want, I, I know exactly how I want things done or how exactly I want to do things. And so it's a, it is a bit of a change of pace for me to, to welcome somebody into the kitchen who doesn't really know what to do and to slow down and be patient enough to teach. And I, I've never asked my mother about it, but I think that she has, she was somewhat the same it was really about getting getting the meal out efficiently. So I wasn't really invited in to make to help make dinner, but I you know from a from a school age of maybe seven or eight, I could make my own lunch and breakfast, which is to say, pour a bowl of cereal or toast something or you know heat something up in a microwave. But I didn't really start cooking in earnest uh, until I went away to college and sort of had to um, had to figure it out. Tell us, though, about you were named Cook of the Week in your hometown newspaper. <laughs> How did that come about? <laughs> You've gone deep. Yeah. Um, so that was, I was in college, and uh, I, I really, I started to cook for my friends. I became a vegetarian and really loved to cook. And my mother was always this kind of booster of, of me, and so she sent my name in and sent a little story about me into our hometown newspaper and they found it interesting and, and picked it up and, and did this this piece about me. Now I think, I, I still think about the recipe that I shared with them which was an incredibly bland, something with black beans that was um, really bland and not very good. You know, I, I really didn't, I didn't know what I was doing. I was kind of muddling through with cookbooks and uh, experimenting and, you know, watching friends who knew more than I did and kind of figuring it out. But um, yeah, that was my mother always being kind of a, a behind the scenes booster, which, which she is still to this day. I mean, she just threw a picture of me up on Facebook this week that I had just sent her as almost a joke, it was me in a horrendous amount of um, makeup to go on a television shoot. And she put it up on Facebook and was so proud of me. And I was like, okay, <laughs> thanks, mom. You worked on farms and in community gardening relatively early in, in life. And uh, I think took an internship at Brooklyn Botanic Gardens. How has that combined with the gardening you've already talked about? How has that informed your relationship with food or your interest in food? I think anytime you know how much work goes into getting a plant from seed or seedling to a viable thing that you can eat, you just automatically have much more respect for it or much less willing to waste it or, or really want to to try and do the best by it. I, I think that working on farms and and seeing the work that goes into community gardens which often sometimes you know have their own small plot of of uh food crops i think i also have a better understanding than i might otherwise of the cost of food and sometimes i'm shocked by how little you know something is being charged for something that i know 
there's a tremendous amount of resources that go into to keeping uh, keeping a food alive and, and making it edible. And then it, uh, in the reverse, I, I, I understand why at a farmer's market or at a specialty store or somewhere else where they don't have the uh, advantage of, of bulk production or bulk distribution, that, that something is on the surface, seem, something does seem quite expensive, but I understand the uh, all of all of what goes into uh, to, to making that food. So, uh, yeah, I'd say that's that's probably the the greatest takeaway that I've that I've gotten. And you moved to New York in 1996 at the age of 22. What was what was food like in New York at, at that point? Well, food for me was mostly sustenance. I mean, it was it's you know New York is an expensive city, and I was I was fresh out of college and. Uh, did a little bit of uh, moving around with jobs and trying to figure out what I'd be doing. And so I really had to be very, very budget conscious. The wonderful thing about New York and about this neighborhood that I lived in in particular is there are, there's so many options. You know, there most neighborhoods, and of course there are exceptions that we call food deserts, but it, most neighborhoods have a variety of, you know, there's at least one big grocery store, you know, that has everything from housewares to produce and meat and packaged goods. And then there are the little stores, bodegas, and then there are often specialty stores and takeout places. And there was such a, such an amazing abundance that I really, um, that I really appreciated coming from the country and then going to college in a small town and then coming to New York and just seeing that within a few blocks, I, I could, I could really have a lot of choice, and if something was didn't look great in one store, I could walk down the street and see if it looked better in the next store. Uh, I did a lot of cooking for myself because that's what I could afford, uh, and any takeout was was very street level. We had a place across the street from my apartment that uh, I don't remember what it was called, but we called it Meat Deli, and it was just it was a it was a bodega. It was a place where you could get a bag of chips or a cheap sandwich. And late at night, if we'd come home from a party or being out at the bars, um, you could get the best sand or the best, I'm sorry, the best hamburger. And it was, I think, like less than $2. And it was just, it was bigger than average and it was greasy. And it was just, it really filled that hole that you sometimes put in your stomach late at night after having a couple of drinks. And having moved to New York, tell us about how you ended up working in food. So I took that love of cooking that I had developed as a college student. I did stop being a vegetarian just shortly after college. And uh, I, I knew I wanted to do something both with writing and with food. And I needed to figure out what that would be. So after a couple of false starts, I ended up working for a family who was looking for a private cook to do just very, very basic low fat food that was kind of the the diet and health vogue at the time we're talking you know the mid 1990s and they didn't need somebody who had any formal training but they just wanted somebody to do their steamed vegetables and their whole wheat spaghetti and their you know chicken breasts and very healthy cooking and I was able to do that so I did that for 2 years and was very happy to have the opportunity to to be a, a professional cook so to speak but I really wanted more beyond that. I wanted to actually know how to cook well and how to, you know, to get those those basic 
knife skills and all of that basic knowledge that a person really needs to, to be a true professional cook and not just somebody who's who's heating up uh, health foods. So after two years, I applied to the French Culinary Institute here in New York, which is now called, I think, the International Culinary Center. And I uh, did a six-month professional culinary training program and, and really got all those skills uh, from from knife skills and how to steam vegetables through to desserts and, and how to uh, participate in a, in a true restaurant service. But you, you then decided to go in a slightly different direction, become a food writer. What kind of pushed you in that direction? What I realized very quickly at cooking school was that I was not cut out to be a restaurant cook. I, I could have done it had I pushed myself in that direction, but I didn't, I, I knew in my gut, I didn't have the emotional temperament <laughs> to be a restaurant cook, which is a, there's plenty has been written about it, of, you know, of course, by my, my late co-author, Anthony Bourdain, most famously of all, you know, it's, it's been well documented that it, it is a very demanding profession, very physically demanding and very, um, draining and if you love it you you love it and you're in it and it and you take energy and excitement from it uh, I found it for me not agreeable to my temperament uh, I loved cooking but not in that high pressure high stakes environment so I knew that I needed to figure out some other way to use this education that I had just invested in uh, and I was very grateful to have done it but I really wanted to figure out what what to do with food that didn't involve standing on my feet for 14 hours a day, uh, being screamed at and sweating and, you know, developing a, um, a drug and alcohol addiction as part of my social life. So I, uh, and I, I, you know, I still had always wanted to write and I was very interested in trying to, to, to make it as a writer. So I thought, well, let's try and put these two things together. Now I have a little bit of knowledge about this subject and, and a desire to write and, Let's see if I can make go of that. So that's what I did. Uh, and, and the way that I was able to break in was I became an assistant to uh, the chef Mario Batali, who was uh, just sort of starting to grow his restaurant empire, was working on his second cookbook of many, and uh, had had at that time a television show. And so it was a really great opportunity for me to get in on the ground floor and learn about all those things and, and meet the people that would, that would help me to become a food writer. And tell us how you ended up working with Anthony Bourdain, because that was one of your longest professional, and I, I suspect personal relationships, and he's a figure that's fascinated a lot of people. Tell us about it. Sure. So uh, after working with Mario Batali for over three years, I was ready to move on from that and at that time, uh, Tony Bourdain had just published Kitchen Confidential and became friends with Mario and said to him, I I'm going to do a cookbook now and I need to hire someone to help me with the recipe editing and testing. And that's something I had done with Mario. And so he recommended me to Tony and Tony hired me based on Mario's recommendation. So this was back in 2002. So that was my first time working with Tony. And I I took over the recipe editing and testing for the book that became Anthony Bourdain's Leal cookbook. And that was a great experience. I think we both uh, felt like it was a good match. We worked well together. It was mostly by email. Uh, and I worked uh, closely with, with his colleague, Jose, who was the, one of the co-authors on the book. And uh, the book came out in 2004. I went on to 
work as a freelance writer and as eventually as a, a magazine editor at Art Culinaire magazine and later at Wine Spectator magazine. Tony, of course, went on to continue to make television and continue to write books. And then uh, about five years later, I uh, was ready to, to start working part-time. I had had a child and I, I really wanted to figure out a way to have more balance in my life. And I reached out to Tony and I reached out to a number of other people and, and said, you know, I'm looking for part-time work. Here's what I can do. Please keep me in mind if you hear of anything. And he wrote back right away and said that his assistant was actually planning on leaving and he needed to hire somebody. And would I be interested in that job? And I said, yes, right away. I, I wouldn't have been any just anyone's assistant because I felt in some ways that I had moved beyond that type of job. But I knew that I could do it for Tony, and that it would be um, a mutually respectful situation, and that it, you know, that it, it would be, it would be great, and it was, and that's uh, where I stayed for for almost ten years until uh, until the end of his life. And he referred to you as as his lieutenant. What what was he like to work for? He was fantastic. I really, I mean, I, I wish for everyone to have this kind of a boss uh, who was generous and supportive and understanding and kind of, you know, we stayed out of each other's way. You know, it was just the perfect situation for me. You know, he was obviously tremendously busy and traveling, you know, between 200 and 250 days a year. So we, we didn't have a shared office. We didn't, um, you know, we didn't see each other that frequently. And I think as much as I adored him, I think that probably lent itself to a very good working relationship. We didn't get on each other's nerves. You know, we, uh, I was able to handle his needs and get him what he needed, you know, with a minimum of fuss. When we did see each other, I was very happy to see him. And he was aware that I had ambitions you know, beyond being an assistant. He, he knew that I was a writer and, and wanted to continue doing that. So he was very generous and thoughtful about bringing me to opportunities to do that. Uh, when he started a publishing imprint at Echo called Anthony Bourdain Books, he asked me if I'd like to start out uh, helping out with that. So I did some some uh, line editing for a couple of the books that he published on the imprint. And if there were things that he needed to write, sometimes he would have me help out with that, either ghostwrite or you know, get him started on something, and then he would finish, you know, f- fill it in with his inimitable voice, or you know, he would send me a piece of writing and ask me to edit it. And uh, eventually, I started traveling once a year. I would travel with him and his crew, and uh, he would he would pay my expenses and said, you know, come along wherever we're going, and if you want to pitch a magazine story about that place while you're there, you know, you're free to do that, and you can. Uh, you know that uh, magazine editors love that if you've if you're if you're able to cover your own expenses to some far flung place and have an interesting and unusual food angle, so I did that a number of times, and then eventually uh, we wrote a cookbook together. Uh, we started in 2014 and published in 2016, and that was called Appetites, which was a huge opportunity, and I was so so grateful for that. And and our next collaboration uh, was meant to be World Travel, which is the book that just came out. And so you you were working on that with him at the time of his his death. That's right. Yep, we had uh, really just started. You know, we had had uh, a very useful planning discussion that I recorded and transcribed, and I, I expected that that would be the first of many sit downs. Uh, that's how we worked when we did appetites. We met a number of times 
often in the kitchen to work through recipes and to figure out how we were going to take a, a dish in one direction or another. So I assumed that would be the, the, the same working uh, situation with, with world travel. I'm grateful that we did have that one meeting because unfortunately that ended up being the only meeting that we had about the book. And after his death, how did you approach the writing of that book? Was there ever a point at which you thought the book wouldn't exist or was it always going to be there? I would say in the immediate aftermath of Tony's death, I, I didn't know what would happen. You know, everything uh, was up in the air. And that was not just for me, that was for his television uh, colleagues and his publishing colleagues. And, you know, everything was just very, very confusing and, and very um, difficult to, to see a way forward. But I think once the dust settled a little bit and I, I spoke with uh, his agent, his literary agent, who's also now my agent, and I spoke with our publisher and my editor there. I think we, we, we thought it was very important to keep moving forward with this book, that the plans were already in place, and that if we could figure out a way to, to use the rich you know, treasure trove of material that Tony left behind, that there was a way to, to try and execute this vision that we had laid out. Tell us a little bit about the book. So it is an atlas of the world, uh, which, and of course it's not completely comprehensive. That would be an insane undertaking, but it is, it is. And so it's an atlas of selected parts of the world that Tony traveled to as a television host and writer, places that he really, really loved. And he wanted to give people some practical uh, advice about how, how to get there and how to see and enjoy the things that he did. It's very much from his point of view. I mean, everything in the book, uh, with a few exceptions, were, were things that in that initial planning meeting, he said, yeah, let's definitely include that. And here's the, the bar or the restaurant or the hotel or the food stall or whatever it was that I still remember very clearly and that I very much want to be included in this book. So it is, it is equal parts practical travel guide and just sort of backward-looking love letter to these places. You know, there's, a, there's a lot of Tony in the book. There's a lot of, you know, he had a lot to say about every place he went. And uh, fortunately, I had access to all of the transcripts of all the television shows, and then obviously his books, and, you know, extensive interview, or, in, in, excuse me, extensive interviews. He was such a great uh, off-the-cuff speaker. So if you want to know what Tony thought about Cambodia. You know, there's, there's, uh, there's a lot, he had a lot to say about Cambodia and that's in this book or Vietnam or Rome or Los Angeles. Uh, it's so it's, it's, um, depending on how you want to use it, it's a lot of, th- it can be a lot of different things, this book. Obviously this year hasn't, hasn't really been the year where we've been able to travel all that much. What has been your approach to your food during the pandemic, Marie? Well, I, was already very much in the habit of of cooking a lot uh, just i think to bring it back to my childhood that was just this this practical value that i was raised with where you know i live in new york city obviously it's it's a tremendous food city there are so many great restaurant options but day to day i i, I tend to keep things pretty simple and, and cook a lot for myself and my son and so when the pandemic hit and things started to shut down and, and uh, 
you know, the, the restaurants were no longer an option. It wasn't a huge adjustment for me to continue to keep cooking from home. There was a scary period in time, and I, I don't know if you experienced this as well in the UK, where supply lines were interrupted, where things just got a little bit scarce. And it was, I don't want to overstate the case. I mean, there was never a point at which I thought, are we going to have enough food? But just to see that that little disruption where there might not be any flour, for instance, available in stores or rice or pasta or beans. You know, there were there were runs on all of these things that we very much take for granted or I had always taken for granted. You know, I'd never experienced a scarcity, fortunately, in my life. Um, there was definitely a moment where where it, it was it was very humbling, I think, for a lot of people just to, to recognize that if you've been lucky enough to live a life of abundance or a life of enough, to suddenly be pondering the, the idea that there are going to be food shortages, shortages I think, was, was a real reset for a lot of people. Um, and of course, you know, we got through that moment. You know, I baked a little bread. I think sourdough bread became very much uh, a trend. I didn't get into it personally, but I, I, don't, I just didn't have the, uh, the patience for it. But, uh, but I did bake a lot of focaccia. That was something I, I, could, I could commit that, that time to, to waiting on a, a no-need focaccia to rise. Yeah, you know, I, I, I think things didn't change too much for me in part because I was, I was finishing my second book and I knew that that was already part of the plan was that from spring to summer of last year of 2020, I was going to be very much at home, isolated, working on finishing this manuscript. So in some ways it was really fortuitous timing for me. And, uh, and, and so continuing to, to just cook simply and be home was, was part of my plan. And tell us, Laurie, what for you is comfort food? Uh, carbohydrates, for sure. Uh, and I don't think I'm unusual in that way. Over years of trying various ways to to maintain a healthy weight, I have at times completely cut carbs out of my diet and I have always suffered greatly for it, even though maybe in the short term it pays off on the scale or you know in the uh, in the shopping for pants but uh, I just love bread and pasta and potatoes and cakes cakes especially I'd say of all of those comfort foods to have a slice of cake to me is just such a such a comfort and uh, I have a beautiful bakery in my neighborhood uh, that sells cake by the slice and I've really been leaning on that especially lately you know I've been doing a lot of interviews and a lot of kind of revisiting the memory of Tony and it's it's very it's bittersweet you know and so I find myself most days kind of popping down to the the bakery for a slice of cake and uh, and and the the sort of temporary comfort that that provides and uh, you know much better for me to go get a slice of cake than to undertake the um, the project of, of making a whole cake and then trying to keep myself from from not eating the whole thing <laughs> and Laurie we normally finish here with a question about what your desert island meal would be what what would be your desert island meal mm. that's a great question probably cake honestly <laughs> if I can say that I have been can I make a whole meal of cake or different cakes if, if I could make a whole meal of cakes I would say the centerpiece would be uh, uh, just a, a classic white cake with white icing 
and then probably a slice of the carrot cake that I've been getting from from Letty's, uh, my my neighborhood bakery, which is somehow very very light but also rich at the same time. It doesn't have an icing, and it's not too overstuffed with um, raisins and nuts. It has some, but it's not. Um, there's no illusion that it's any kind of health food or any kind of you know trail mix. It's 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 a straight ahead slice of cake, and then I'd finish with a tres leches cake, which is uh, very moist. Um, saturated with coconut milk and sweetened condensed milk and heavy cream and whipped cream. And it's just, I mean, and then I would probably take a very long nap. <laughs> that is an iconic desert island meal. <laughs> We've never had one like that before. <laughs> Laurie, thank you so much for joining Table Talk. And Laurie's new book, World Travel, An Irreverent Guide, is available now. Thank you for joining us on the Spectators Food and Drink podcast. For more recipes, food history, stories and drinks, you can head to the Spectator website. (laughs) 